following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Verse 17 down to verse 32, and uh, the heading there is Living as Children of Light. Don't pay any attention to that. Uh, Verse 17, I'll pick it up there. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to, to, the, to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ uh, God forgave you. Let's... uh, Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians. We thank you for the great, great spiritual truths that are there. And Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to have some insight into this passage this morning. And that you would help us, Father, to be able to take the truth of the word of God and apply it to our lives. That we might change that we might be transformed, that we might bring glory to you. And so we commit uh, this morning to you afresh, and we pray that your spirit would guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. How many people here are from America? Can I I see your hands? Okay, we've got quite a bit. All right, good good Americans. I'm from from Boston. I've been here for quite a while. uh, But um, tell me when you know who I'm talking about, okay? Just shout it out. This man ran on a platform of change. Barack Obama, yeah. Barack Obama, one of the most uh, charismatic politicians that have come out of the United States in recent years, running on a platform of change and promised all sorts of change. Uh, That was his platform. That's what he promised to bring to America. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about politics. And I don't know if, uh, you know, 12.12 trillion or 13 trillion dollars is the type of change that Americans really want, or having health care in control of the government. I don't think we're really looking at that kind of change. But this is what he promised. He promised to bring change to America. And um, 
The Bible talks a lot about change. And this passage actually talks a lot about change. And But the type of change the Bible talks about, we're not talking about the type of change that Barack Obama is talking about. As a matter of fact, if, if politicians understood the principle of change in the Bible, we'd have a much solid country, a much more solid country politically, economically, and in every other way. But they don't understand this principle, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But we're not, when we talk about change, we're not talking about reinventing something. That's not the type of change we're talking about. We're not talking about rebuilding something. We're not talking about re-engineering something or remodeling something or reconstructing something or even restoring something. That's not the type of change we're talking about. And any other R that you can think of and throw in there, that's not the type of change we're talking about. When the Bible talks about change, it talks about it in a very different light. Salvation... Salvation, your salvation, my salvation, is not a matter of improvement, of re-engineering something, or reconstructing something, or reforming something, or remodeling something, or whatever you want to call it. Salvation is total transformation. It's true transformation. And that's what, that's what this passage is talking about. That's the theme that's driving the heart of this passage, Paul is getting at true transformation. Not change, but transformation. It's different. And the Bible talks about a lot. The New Testament talks about a lot of new things. For instance, the New Testament talks about having a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, a new power, a new knowledge, a new wisdom, a new perception, a new understanding, a new righteousness, new love, new desire, new citizenship, and many, many other things that are new. And all this is summed up in Romans chapter 6 as being the new life. And that's what salvation is. It's new life. And, um, and you can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And he goes on in Galatians chapter 2, and he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And so we've been created as a new person, a totally new creation in God's eyes. A new motivation, a new drive, a new spirit has been created within us. In order for change to take place, we need to realize that, because I've brought a couple of diagrams here that I want you to see, because... I find that when we get into the, the, the whole concept of the old man and the new man and the flesh, and people get really confused about it, and they, they really don't understand what it is. And we often think that uh, the old man and the flesh is one and the same. And that the new man, and this, you know, you've heard the saying, two natures beat within my breast, one I love, the other I hate, the one I feed dominates. I hate that saying. I really don't believe in that saying. Because the Bible makes it clear that when you, when you were born into Adam, you were born into sin. Can you get that, uh, that next slide up there, that picture up there? And so here you are. You're in Adam. You're in Adam. And because you're in Adam, you received everything that is in Adam. You're a sinner. We'll get, we'll get into what he says here in just a minute. But there's something that happened at 
at salvation. When you became a believer, God took you out of Adam and he puts you into Christ. And so turn to that next slide. And now you're no longer in the line of Adam, but you're in the line of Jesus. You're in the line of God. And so the Bible says that your old self, your old man, that was crucified. And it was buried, and you were resurrected into newness of life. That's what happened. And so the old man is dead. It's a corpse. It's, de- it's as dead as dead can be. What remains is what we call the flesh, that tendency to want to sin. And so it's really important to understand, because this is, this is what theologians call the doctrine of identification. And until we really understand the doctrine of identification and realize that when we became a believer, that we were crucified, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and risen with Christ in newness of life, and the old has passed away, and behold, everything has become new. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And until we really understand that, then change will never happen in a person's life. Transformation will never really take root in a person's life. And in this passage, that's what Paul is talking about. And so we have a new nature. And a new nature demands a changed behavior. A changed nature demands a changed behavior. If you and I claim to be believers and we have a changed nature, then that changed nature has to, has to issue out into a changed life and changed behavior in every single facet of our lives. And uh, that's the objective of today's text. He's, here Paul is talking about absolute transformation, true transformation in the life of the Christian. He's talking about how transformation takes place from your old way of life to your new way of life. And he addresses three areas in this passage. And there's lots of ways you can look at this passage. It actually breaks down quite nicely. You can look at, uh, for instance, verse 17 to 19. Uh, Paul gives an admonition there. And then in 20 through 24, he, he, he he presents an argument. And then in the 25 on through 32, you see the application of that. You can look at it from the standpoint of the old nature, verses 17 through 19, and the new nature, verses 20 through 32. There's several ways you can look at it. But for our purposes, I want to look at it from the standpoint of transformation. And how, do, how does a believer transform himself or herself from the, from, the, from the old nature, the old self, which has been crucified? But again, those tendencies are still there to the new nature of being like Christ. How does that happen? And Paul here, he, he talks about uh, three areas that we need to focus on in, in, uh, in order to change from the old life to the new life. And the first, the first area is this, to change your thoughts or change your thinking. Change your thoughts. In verse 22 and 20, 23, he says, You were taught with regard to the former way of life, to put off, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, or to be renewed in your mind. And that's the first thing that he drives home, is renewing your thoughts, changing your thoughts, renewing your mind. And he gives a very, very strong admonition. Now, now why does Paul get into this? He gives a really strong admonition admonition in verse 17. He says, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And he says to them, he says very emphatically, he says, walk not after the Gentiles. These are people who used to walk like this. They've become believers, and he's saying now, don't walk like that any longer. The same is true of us as well. We were just like these people, no different. And part of the reason why he says this, he says walk not, is because of the situation in Ephesus. Now, you know, Ephesus was just a cesspool of debauchery. It was an absolute cesspool of immorality. Ephesus was one of the great cultural and commercial centers in Asia Minor. It was, uh, it, it, it was a city of commerce. It was a city that housed the Temple of Diana, where there was uh, uh, worship going on. of Every type of vile kind of worship that you could think of, there was temple prostitutes. There was all sorts of things going on. And Paul is speaking into, into this city of Ephesus, which is just an absolute cesspool of debauchery and immorality. And he's saying to the Ephesian believers, he's saying, don't do that. Don't walk like that any longer. Why? Matter of fact, uh, to, quote, to quote one Greek philosopher, uh, who I can't pronounce his name, he says this. He said about Ephesus in 5 B.C., five centuries before Paul even got there. And I don't imagine it got any better. It probably got a lot worse. This philosopher said this. He says, Ephesus, as the darkness of vileness, the morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. That's what this Greek philosopher said about Ephesus. It was that bad. It was that bad. I mean, it was a moral cesspool. And the church of Ephesus is this small island of despised believers living in this cesspool, this giant cesspool of wickedness. And that's the situation that Paul's speaking into. And uh, in verse 17, he says, Don't walk like that, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. Now, the word futility here means to be without aim or purpose. It means to be totally misguided. Uh, a synonym of that would be totally to, to be totally unproductive. And, and, and Paul says, if you walk like that, it's a walk in futility. And so what's he talking about? He breaks it down, and you see the disease of the human race in the next few verses. Verses 17 through 19, he points out six things that are in the heart of unregenerated, unregenerated man. And the first thing he talks about is hardness. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And that's, that's really the deepest problem here. And you have to look at this from, from the end of the verse back. And he talks about having a hardness of heart. Uh, verse 18, due to their hardness of heart, my heart, my heart is hardened against God. Your heart is hardened against God. Apart from, apart from the uh, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, your heart is hard against God. It doesn't seek God. It's not moved by God. It's not attracted to God. It doesn't delight in God. It's hard. And uh, there's a far deeper problem here than, than just ignorance. The fact of the matter is, the cause of ignorance and the guilt of ignorance is the darkness of the human heart. 
And, and Paul has in mind here uh, the process of calcification that goes on. You know, when, it, when you break a bone and the bone gets mended and, and there's deposits that form around the bone, oftentimes those deposits are even harder than the bone itself. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says that the, the, the hardness of the human heart is so hard that it, does, it doesn't want anything to do with God. It doesn't seek God, is not attracted to God, doesn't want anything to do with God. And he says, that's futility. And he goes on, he talks about darkness. Number two, darkness. You go to that next, uh, that next PowerPoint. Darkness, they darkened in their understanding. And it, it's a perfect possible here. It's a continual process. And so they're, they're darkened in their understanding. They don't understand the things of God. And as part of Satan's uh, strategy is to, is to put shields over people's eyes so they can't understand. They're blind to the truth of God. And so there's darkness. He goes on and he talks about deep ignorance. He says they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of the hearts. They have a deep ignorance. It's a result of darkness. It's a deep ignorance of reality. They refuse to recognize that there is a God, that God is in control, and they try to find meaning in their life by looking for other things. And fourthly, licentiousness. Licentiousness. He says there, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of the hearts, having lost all sensitivity, having lost, verse 19, all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as indulgent, and every kind of impurity with continual lust for more. Licentiousness. The hardness, the darkness, the ignorance of the heart results in a licentious attitude. They've become so callous, their conscience has been so seared, that to do the things that were morally wrong doesn't even bother them anymore. And you know that to be true in your own life. You know that when you, when you act in sin, when you commit sin, and you know it's wrong, you know your conscience is pricked, your conscience is seared, you know you've violated, you've grieved the Spirit of God, you've quenched the Spirit of God, you've done something that disrupts your spirit within you. But then you do it again. And you do it again until you become desensitized to it until you get to the point where you can do that same act and it doesn't even bother you anymore. This is the nature of the human heart. And Paul is speaking into this situation. He says, don't walk like that. Don't walk like that. Uh, number five, uncleanliness. He talks about uncleanliness. Uh, inevitably, the hardness and darkness, the ignorance of the human heart, the licentiousness spills over into practices of uncleanliness. Um, notice verse 19, the end of it. It says, it says, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. And now it reaches out into, into our outer behavior. It's not just part of our... Now we're acting upon what it is that we're thinking about, what we're doing. And lastly, you're alienated from the life of God. He says in verse 19... Uh, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality and purity, uh, continual lust for more. They're alienated from God. Alienated from God. The hardness, the darkness, the ignorance, the licentiousness, 
the practice of uncleanliness cuts me off from the one thing that could save my life, and that's the life of God. It's a disease that's in the heart of every human being. And the fact of the matter is that apart from the grace and mercy of God, we would all go back to that. You'd all go back to that. And you become dead. Dead. And in this situation, Paul gives an admonition, a very strong admonition. He says, walk not after the Gentiles. Why? Because it's futility. It leads you down a dead end. It's totally meaningless. It lacks aim. It lacks purpose. It's going nowhere. He says, don't walk like the Gentiles. So in verse 20, he goes on. He says, you, however, you, however, speaking to the Ephesians and to believers, did not come to know Christ that way. He says, surely you heard of him, you heard of him, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And so Paul here makes two assumptions. He makes two assumptions. The first assumption is this. He says, you heard him. And the second assumption, he says, is that you were taught in him. And so, and that's really important because the fact of the matter is, unless you've heard of Jesus and you've been taught in Jesus, unless you've been truly regenerated, unless you've been truly reborn, unless you've been truly uh, uh, created anew, then this isn't going to help you. And that's really, this is the gospel. This is at the heart of the gospel. That unless you have heard, and unless you've been taught, and unless you have uh, received that and changed from within, then anything that Paul says in this text really isn't going to help you. And that's really the question that you know I ask you is, you know, have you heard of him? Have you been taught from him? Do you know him? Are you walking with him? And Paul essentially says, he says, change your clothes. Take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. And, uh, um, and you see, the, you see the, the, the contrast here. If you look up here, you can see the contrast in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And, to, uh, and, then, and then in verse 24, And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And, and he, he, he makes a comparison here between the old and the new, the old being the old person. In verse 24, you see the new person, the new creation. In verse 22, it's corresponding to the former life, that which is in verses 17 through 19. In verse 24, corresponding to God, to the life of God. Verse 22, it's corrupted through desires. Verse 24, it's created in righteousness and holiness. Verse 22, based upon deceit. Verse 24, based upon truth. And right between... The two of these verses is verse 23. And the whole thing hinges on verse 23. And that's really the driving force of this passage, verse 23, where he says this. He says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And so how do you move from from your former way of life to a new way of life? How do you move from verse 22 
to verse 24. That's really what Paul is talking about. And there's only one way you can do it. Assuming, make, with those two assumptions in mind, that you've heard of him and you've been taught by him, there's only one way you can do it. And that's through a continual renewing of the mind. It's through a continual renewing of the mind. And it's not a choice. Paul isn't giving us a choice here. That unless your mind is continually being renewed, if it's not, then you're basically falling the way of the Gentiles. And that's a way of futility. It's a way of destruction. They say that physically you are what you eat. Spiritually you are what you think. And uh, Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Romans 12, 2, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the Greeks held a very... Uh, you can go on to the next, next PowerPoint there. The Greeks had a very high view of the mind. And Paul hits it over and over again in this passage. Uh, and, and this sort of idea has been repeated by philosophers throughout the centuries, you know. Uh, let me just give you some interesting quotes that I've found. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, the most important things in life are, thought, are the thoughts you choose to frame. Rolf Waldo Emerson said, uh, excuse me, A.W. Tozer said this, what we think about when we are free to, th what we think about when we are free to think about what we will, this is what we are or soon will become. So true. Emerson says this, a person is what he thinks about all day. Fulton J. Sheen, a great Christian, the mind is like a clock that is continually running down. It has to be wound up daily with good thoughts. Charles Spurgeon, good thoughts are blessed guests and should be, should be heartily welcomed, well-fed and much sought after. Like rose like rose leaves, they, can get, they give out a sweet smell if laid up in a jar of memory. And then Norman Vincent Peale, I uh, don't really like this guy too much, but some of the things he says are true. This is one of the things that he says that's true. Change your thoughts and change your world. Change your thoughts and change your world. And Paul, Paul says this, there must be a spiritual renewal of your thoughts and attitudes. Listen, friends, unless we are constantly renewing our minds, then you'll never, you'll never experience the transformation that God wants to bring into your life. Um, you know, why, why, does Paul, why does Paul admonish the Ephesians to, uh, to change their thoughts? I think, I think partly because by nature people are very pessimistic. I know at times I can be pessimistic. And people, by nature, can be very pessimistic. And, uh, you know, how do you move from pessimism, pessimism to optimism? Uh, you know, by learning to think a new way. Uh, how do you change your thoughts? How do you change your thoughts? Philippians 4.8. A great verse, a verse to memorize. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, here, are some, here are some great thoughts that I've written down 
uh, that I've meditated on in my life. Uh, and you can do this. You can pick up a Bible. You can go through your Bible and you can write down great thoughts. Uh, a better thing would be to do is just to memorize the scripture that that great thought came from. But here are some great thoughts. Things are working out for the best. Christ will finish the work he has begun. God has turned his back on my sin. God will never turn his back on me. I belong to God. That will never change. I have access to everything I truly need. My future is bright. Living in God's love is the key to living in power. And it's these kind of things, by meditating, by, by memorizing, by finding time for solitude and chewing the cud of the word of God, that's the thing that will transform your mind, which will transform everything else about your behavior. It's through, it's through the mind, through the mind. And that's why, uh, you know, Tim and uh, people like me and Dan and other people, we always hop on, you know, having a daily quiet time. It's not because we're legalistic. I mean, that, that's not legalism. That, that's not legalism. Uh, that's, just, that's just common sense. But it, it's so important because it's through that that you get your bearings. It's through that that you fill your mind with good stuff. And as you go through it one day, even in Chiang Mai, your mind is bombarded by all sorts of stuff. I mean, stuff that just isn't even worth thinking about. And unless you have some sort of defense, and, 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 and Scripture makes it clear, our only weapon is the Word of God. That's the only thing we got. Aside from the Spirit of God, Christ living in us, and us being in Christ, the only thing we have is the Word of God. And unless we meditate upon it, unless we, unless we soak it in, unless we memorize it and chew the cup, you'll never receive the type of transformation you want to receive in your life. There's no other way. And that's Paul's whole point. That if you're going to move from the old self, that old nature, to the new self, you have to, you have to pay attention to verse 23. Um, the second thing he says is this. He says, change your thoughts. Renew your mind. And the second thing can't happen unless the first thing happens, and that's change your words. Change your words. Ephesians 4.25 says this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. We are all members of one body. If you jump down to verse 20, 29, he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Um, change your words. Change your words. Uh, you know, learn to encourage other people. There was uh, one time in my, in my life, and something I, I try to do, I have to be careful when I do it, though, uh, especially with women. Um, it's like I, I, found, I, I try to compliment people. You ever compliment somebody? Just, just give them a compliment. You know, say something about the glass, their glasses or how they dress. It's amazing what it does to people. I mean, the whole countenance just changes. And, and, and the power of words is so incredible. Paul says here, change your words. Why? Because our words carry a tremendous amount of weight. 
Um, somebody said that uh, to speak of mere words is to speak is is much like speaking of mere dynamite. To speak of mere words is much like speaking of mere dynamite. Uh, words are incredibly powerful, and uh, you know that saying: you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Not true. Not true. I can still remember. Um, people in my life that have said some of the most uh, damaging things. And you know who most of those people were? They were coaches. Coaches that I had. Said some of the most damaging things that I, I can still remember every one of them that they said to me. One of the reasons why I coach is because of that reason. Because I can transform kids through words and instill in kids by the things that I say. Because words are so powerful. Uh, uh, James chapter 3, James says a lot about words. And uh, when I was uh, a young man, a young boy, I, I used to love to go horseback riding. I, you know, I was living in New England just outside of Boston, and, and anybody who's been to New England, it's just, it's just beautiful up there. We go in the fall, and we go really early in the morning to the stables. And the horses hadn't been out yet. And these things just wanted to run. I mean, they get, out, get, out, get that thing out the door, and it just takes off. First time I went, I went with a buddy of mine, John. And uh, John had been riding for a while. He says, when you get there, just tell him you're advanced. I said, okay. You know, I've never been on a horse in my life. Lady comes up to me. She says, "I'm like, I'm." This was before I was a believer. All right. Uh, the lady comes up to me. She says, "Are you, are you beginner, intermediate, or advanced?" I said, "I'm advanced." <laughs> and I, I get on this horse, and this thing just takes off. <laughs> I mean, it's just running, and I was scared to death. And I'm just hanging on to this thing. You know, I watched enough uh, 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 cowboy movies and John Wayne movies to know what I needed to do. You know, and so I'm pulling back in this thing, you know. And it's amazing that an animal that powerful, one little bit, can control that animal. When I was uh, a senior in high school, we went on a senior trip. And one of the things that we did was we went and we rented a schooner up in Maine, a 65-foot schooner. And we rented the boat, we rented a captain, the first mate, and a cook. And we did everything else. And we got on that boat, and when that thing was full sail, that thing could fly. And we're just flying through the water. And it's just amazing that a little rudder can control that schooner, a boat that big with a little rudder. James says this. He says the tongue is like that. The tongue is so powerful. Your words are so powerful that you can actually destroy people's lives by what you say. He says of all the animals that man could tame, and we got elephants in Chiang Mai that people have tamed. We got dolphins. We got whales. We got all sorts of things that man can tame, but nobody can tame the tongue. It's a world of wickedness. And we do more damage by our tongues. Why does Paul bring, into, bring the tongue into this? He says, speak truthfully. Don't use abusive language. Why? Because that's the whole emphasis in this book. What, what Tim's been talking about for the past couple of weeks is unity and maturity. And you'll never attain to the unity of the Spirit if we're speaking badly to one another. 
God wants the church to dwell in unity. You know, simply put, he wants us to get along. And how do you do it? By not using, by speaking truthfully. Don't use abusive language. Verse 25. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully. And, and verse 25 through 32, there's actually four or five applications. And for every verse that he gives, every, 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 everything that he cites here, he gives, he gives a negative, the old, the old self. Then he gives a positive, and he tells you why. So look at verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. That's what the old man used to do. But now you're a new man. And he says, speak truthfully to his neighbor. Why? Because we're all members of the same body. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That's what, that's what you used to do. That was the old walk. And he says, he says, uh, but only what is helpful for building up others. That's the new walk. Why? According to the needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So he gives a negative, he gives a positive, and he tells you why you should do it. And, um, uh, but in verse 25 he says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. And some people have a hard time reconciling the two. Have you ever noticed that? That when it comes to speaking the truth uh, and putting away falsehood, some people have a hard time reconciling the two. Uh, they think that, you know, when if they tell the truth, that, uh, uh, you know, that what it means to be honest is you can say whatever you want, whenever you want to say it, however you want to say it. It really doesn't work that way. Uh, you can say whatever you want, but how you say it, when you say it, how you send it, makes every bit of importance of, of how that person on the other end is going to receive it. He says, be honest, speak the truth, but do it in a wise way. Now, uh, those of you who have been to my home and have experienced my family know that uh, we haven't got a perfect family. We have a large family. Uh, we don't have a perfect family. But one of the things that I've really tried to instill in my kids is, the, is this principle that don't say mean things to one another. Just don't be mean. Don't insult one another. Don't say mean things to one another. Don't call each other names. And uh, that's a principle that, that we've tried to instill into our kids. And, and it's something that the church has to really heed to, too. Uh, the church uh, needs to take it seriously and not to use father-abusive language, no matter how right you are and how wrong they are. Uh, no matter how much they deserve to get blasted. Uh, no, matter, uh, no matter the fact that they said it first. The fact of the matter is, is that we are new creations and we're walking in a new light and therefore we should put away all abusive speech. He says, like verse 29, everything you say be, of, be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Now, I don't know about you, but I love good conversation. I love to sit down with people and have, have good conversation. And I, I, I find something very interesting about people. You know what it is? People like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about themselves. And, um, you know, conversation, what, what is conversation for you? Is it a chance to, 
to tell uh, what you're doing, what you think, what you like, what you dislike? Or is conversation an opportunity for you to have input into somebody else's life? And there's a, there's a principle that I've been trying to teach myself, and it's this. Here's a principle. When I talk to you, I talk about you. And you know what that has done? That, that, is, that, is, that has opened up opportunities for me to minister to people. As they talk to me and they start telling me things, it's amazing how, how much people open up because they want to talk. And so I've tried to exercise this principle. Go to the next PowerPoint, please. Stick with me, buddy. Uh, now you're too far ahead now. That's okay, all right. Okay, that's it? All right, sorry. I must have lost that one. Okay, that's fine. Um, but the principle is this. When I talk to you, I talk about you. And that really puts a lid on gossip. It puts a lid on criticism. It puts a lid on a lot of things that, that I would normally say. But I don't say it because I'm trying not to talk about me. I want to talk about them. Um, so he says, change, change your words. Change your words. Uh, and then he says one last thing. He says, change your actions. Verse 26 and 27. Uh, look at verse 26. He says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And he brings up the thing of anger. And again, you see the, you see the negative. He says, in your anger, uh, do not sin. He says, now, as, as you're walking in newness of life, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because you give the devil a foothold. And this um, anger is one of those emotions that uh, we're all very familiar with. And anger, anger is an emotion so strong it can destroy relationships. It can destroy families. It can split churches. Um, you can become obsessed with it. It can dominate your thinking. They can control your actions. There's two things I want, two assertions I want to make about anger here. First, first of all, the first assertion is this. There is a time to get angry. That's the first assertion that Paul makes. There is a time to get angry. But then there's a second assertion. The second assertion is this. The time to stay angry is short. So there is a time to get angry, but the time to stay angry is short. Why? Because if you harbor anger, it leads to all sorts of bitterness and, and rage, and it gives the devil a foothold. And it's sort of like, I like to liken it to an umbrella. As Christians, we're under an umbrella of grace. And when we come out from under that umbrella, then we're susceptible to the devil and all of his fiery darts into our life. So long as we stay under that umbrella of grace, and that's keeping short accounts, then we're protected by God. But as soon as we get out from under that umbrella, then we're susceptible to all sorts of things. And Paul here is saying, you know, it's okay to get angry, but when you get angry, keep a short account. And don't let the sun go down in your anger. Why? Because you give the devil a foothold. And then lastly, he, talks, he says in verse 27, uh, 28, excuse me, 
Uh, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful. And again, you see it again. The negative, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. The positive, but he has to do something with his hands. Why? In order to help other people. And you see the application there. Uh, so the thief must become a philanthropist. You know, a thief isn't concerned about anybody but himself. He takes what he wants. And I, I, you know, I thought about this and I thought, why, why did Paul get into stealing? And I really couldn't understand why he, get, other than that it was an extreme, a good example is an extreme. But then I thought back in my own life, uh, before I was a Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was 21. And I was, by trade, I was an electrician for 13 years of my life before I went into the ministry. And I worked in secular jobs all my life. And I know what, I know what they're like. And we steal. <laughs> we steal all the time. It's just, it's just the nature of man to steal. And I thought about my life before I knew Christ and I realized, you know what? It, it goes right along with what he's saying. Because people steal all the time. And he says, don't steal. Instead, be a philanthropist. A thief acts on his own behalf. But a philanthropist, he looks out for the well-being of others, takes care of himself, and he takes care of other people. And so here's a principle. Here's a principle to follow. Take care of yourself without hurting others. Take care of others without hurting yourself. Take care of yourself without hurting others. Take care of others without hurting yourself. And so through this, this whole passage, Paul is saying, do you want to be truly transformed into the likeness of Christ? The only way you can do it is, first of all, by changing your thinking, renewing your mind. It's through renewing of the mind that your words will be changed. And it's when your words are changed that your actions will be changed. So he says, change, change your mind, change your thinking, change your words, change your behavior. And he sums it up in verse 31. Uh, and you can see it here. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Those are thoughts. And he says, harsh words and slander. Those are words. As well as all types of malice behavior, malicious behavior. Those are actions. And he says, instead of doing those things, verse 32, the positive, be kind, be compassionate, and be forgiving towards one another. It's great on paper. It's a lot more difficult to do. But you know, the wonderful thing about it is that in doing it, we're not alone. We have a risen Savior living inside us that can help us. But I come back to Paul's, Paul's original thought. It will never be true. It will never be true unless you know him and you've been taught of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you desire for us to be transformed. And you've even started that transformation in us.
And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to, uh, to be constantly renewing our mind, to do the things that are necessary so that we can be changed and transformed into your likeness. Father, help us with our words. Help us to realize the power of our words. Lord, bring us under conviction when we say things that are inappropriate. Help our, help our speech to be seasoned with life. And Father, lead us in our actions, I pray. We thank you, we praise you, we thank you that you're with us. And we commit ourselves afresh to you this morning, in Jesus' name.